Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. We're back after a slightly longer than usual end of season break, and we're ready for season eight. As always, this season will go in chronological order, and this time we're starting near the dawn of history. We have gone a bit further back once, but this is pretty far, about 4,000 years ago, in ancient Mesopotamia, in the fallout from the dawn and then collapse of empire. This episode, we're talking about Sumer, after the last real Sumerian empire, which sprung up after the time of Sargon the Great. This time, Sumerian cities rose again to take control, at least locally, for a last hurrah. One of the most important leaders of this era was Gungunum, king of the city of Larsa. Gungunum rose from perhaps a regional governor of a small province to king of Larsa, Ur, and all of southern Sumer. He helped fill the void left by the collapse of the empires before the rise of Hammurabi and the Babylonians. But as we'll see, he also helps us highlight the transition from the Sumerian people who ruled southern Mesopotamia for a thousand years to the Semitic people who would take over. Maps and images can be found on the website almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 8, Episode 1, Gun Gunnum, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Gungunum lived in the 20th century, B.C., in southern Mesopotamia, an area that was known at the time as Sumer. Sumer's glory days were fading by that time, though, and by that I really mean the Sumerian people. Semitic peoples would soon overrun the area, while these newcomers did honor and continue some Sumerian traditions, customs, and gods. The Sumerians themselves, as an independent entity, would soon be gone from the world stage. The Akkadian Empire had united the whole of Mesopotamia centuries earlier, but by this point, it had been gone for over 150 years. In the northern part of the region, various city-states vied for power. Mari, in what is now the eastern edge of Syria, was one of the most powerful ones. Another was Yamhad, located where Aleppo is today. The 12th dynasty came to power in Egypt, a stable and strong dynasty which marks the height of the Middle Kingdom period. To its south, Nubia was a populated region, but it wasn't yet the kind of organized kingdom it would become in the next few centuries. Looking north into the Mediterranean, Crete began to enter what is now called the proto-palatial period of the Minoan culture. The Minoans began to build their grand palaces and began using their Linear A writing system around this time. On the northern shores of the Mediterranean, the early Mycenaean civilization was still a few hundred years away. Scholarly consensus puts their beginning around 1750 BC. A number of small kingdoms, or maybe better described as tribes, covered Anatolia, and one of them, the Hittites, had probably just migrated to the region. 
Further east beyond the Fertile Crescent, Elam was a strong state that often interacted with the peoples of Mesopotamia. Continuing east, the Indus Valley Civilization, also called the Harappan Civilization, was nearing the end of its real height. Like Mesopotamia, people in the Indus Valley had an advanced urban society, and the two regions certainly engaged in trade with each other. However, within a few hundred years, the Harappan civilization collapsed entirely. Further east, China saw the emergence of its first dynasty, suggesting the coalescing of the state into something more formal, as the Bronze Age was beginning there. Continuing east across the Pacific, the Norte Chico, or Corral civilization in Peru, was another urban advanced civilization that, like Sumer, had been around for a millennium and was nearing its end. Of course, these civilizations weren't the only organized people of the time, but they were organized enough that we can look back 4,000 years later and still see them. There were less urban, less organized, and maybe most importantly, less literate cultures throughout the world, including the one that was putting the finishing touches on a thousand years of work and changes at Stonehenge. But besides Egypt, it is in Mesopotamia that we have the most significant evidence of what happened, enough to even tell a story about it. Sumer, really a name for the whole of southern Mesopotamia at the time, was near its end. The last major Sumerian empire, sometimes known as Ur III, or the Third Dynasty of Ur, was founded by Ur-Namu, in 2112 BC. I went over all of this in Season 5, Episode 1, so you all know about that. That empire was destroyed in about 2000 BC by the Elamites, which you also know about because you heard that briefly mentioned in Season 7, Episode 1, on Shutruk Nakunte. Okay, so, in many historical summaries, they go right from the end of Ur-3 in 2000 to Hammurabi, King of the Babylonians, who lived in the early 1700s. Susan Wise Bauer puts it wonderfully in a footnote in her book, The History of the Ancient World. Quote, The time from the fall of Ur through about 1600 BC is generally called the Old Babylonian period, an incredibly inaccurate designation since Babylon doesn't become an important city until the reign of Hammurabi, beginning in 1792, unquote. For something like two centuries after the fall of Ur III, Sumer, that is to say southern Mesopotamia, the area that we start calling Babylonia basically after Hammurabi's conquest of the region, was independently ruled and, you know, still existed. It wasn't Babylonian at the time, a time which some have taken to call the Isin Larsa period rather than the Old Babylonian period. That is because two cities, Isin and Larsa, claim supremacy over Sumer. But despite their claims, these cities weren't led by native Sumerians. A different group of people than the Sumerians, a people known as the Amorites, who spoke a northwestern Semitic language, had been pushing their way down the Euphrates and Tigris rivers for generations, and had been a threat to the Akkadian empire that Sargon had built. The fall of Ur seems to have broken open the floodgates, and the Amorites poured in. Seen as uncouth wild foreigners by the native Sumerians, the Amorites were probably a mix of peoples who had migrated from the northwest. The trickle was at times slow, sometimes faster, but 
Sooner or later, they had made their way into Sumer. They mixed so well with the native population that they became almost indistinguishable. From the Cambridge History of Babylonia, quote, In turn, these strangers themselves were assimilated, and though they modified, they never could have transformed the society which had striven to reject them. It was possible to speak of driving out Gutians, but after a comparatively few years, who could have found the Akkadians or the Amorites to cast these out from the land where they had ceased to be distinguishable? Unquote. They were people coming south from Syria who assimilated in many ways, but at some point, before the rise of Hammurabi and his Babylonian empire, there was a noticeable change brought on by these people. It's not entirely clear why it happened, but the kings of the Sumerian cities started having Amorite names. The names are clearly not Sumerian, which wasn't a Semitic language, and they weren't Akkadian, the lingua franca of at least the northern city-states as well as Babylon, which we know because that was an eastern Semitic language and has some clear differences from the western Semitic languages that were being used. In addition, we begin to see signs of Martu worship in these cities. Martu was not only the patron deity of the Amorites, it was also another name for them. The word Amorite is derived from Martu. So the kings of Sumer were now Amorites, and while we don't know how they came to rule the lands of southern Mesopotamia, it appears they did. Hammurabi himself was Amorite, as attested by his name and the names of his ancestors. So what were these Amorites, and before them Sumerians, ruling in the time between the third dynasty of Ur and the Babylonian Empire? Well, let's first start out by talking about the fall of Ur III. The last emperor, Ibisin, was the great-great-grandson of Ur-Namu, and he ruled an empire that stretched from Ur on the banks of the Persian Gulf up the Tigris and Euphrates. At times, their suzerainty reached the Mediterranean, holding sway over the cities of Ebla in northwest Syria and Byblos on the coast of today's Lebanon. But by Ibisin's day, the empire didn't stretch that far, and Amorite invasions had pushed its borders south enough that it no longer held nominal hegemony over Mari, a powerful city-state on the middle Euphrates. Ibisin was weakened by the Amorite attacks, and the Elamites to the east took advantage, breaking away from any control Ur had over them. But from the city of Ur, he still ruled over the other core Sumerian cities, Uruk, Kish, Sippar, Lagash, the list goes on. The weakness, though, spread, and others began to take advantage. Enter Ishbi-Era, one of Ibisin's provincial governors, who was asked to buy grain for the great king of Sumer. Ishbi-Era wrote back that he had indeed obtained the grain, but it was going to cost Ibisin to get it all the way down to Ur. In the meantime, he'd hold on to it in his headquarters, the city of Isin. All right, so if you're having trouble reading between the lines, Ishbi-Era was saying, Thanks for the money, O great king Ibisin. I did buy the grain, and feel free to come and take it, if you think you can. Ibisin lamented and asked his other governors to help, but he couldn't actually do anything about it. And this is basically how Ishbi-Era began a kingdom based in Isin. Soon, an independent Isin had added Nippur and other nearby cities around, and Ibisin 
only controlled Ur. Ishbi-era and his kingdom of Isin basically held the rest of Sumer, at least until the Elamites came in, sacked Ur, and took poor Ibisin away. Ishbi-era ruled for another 33 years, and eventually kicked out the Elamites from Ur and ruled it himself. Recorded for posterity on stone tablets as a traitor to his king, thanks to the letters between the two, he wasn't the only one who was trying to break away at the time, but he was successful enough to call himself the king of Sumer. And thanks to Ishbi-era, the kings of Isin wrote down that they were the successors to Ernamu. They made kings lists showing the direct line of kings from Ernamu down through them of all of Sumer. But just because they wrote it down doesn't make it true. Sumer wasn't to be ruled by one person anymore. According to Samuel Noah Kramer in his book, The Sumerians, quote, the land was breaking into a number of city-states under separate rulers, and there was no longer a centralized empire. For close to a century, it is true, Isin remained the most powerful of these states. It controlled Ur, the old imperial capital, and Nippur, which continued as Sumer's spiritual and intellectual center throughout this period, unquote. However, other cities grew in power outside of Isin's control, especially those further north, and there wasn't true control over the region at the time. This allowed another city-state to come to the forefront. That city-state was Larsa, during the reign, of course, of a man named Gunganam. Now, we know him as a king, but some have argued that rather than being born into that, instead, Gunganam inherited the governorship of Lagash from his predecessor and older brother, Zabaya. Lagash was a traditionally important city, and the state or country surrounding it included the city of Larsa. That level of authority, coupled with Isin's weakness, may have allowed him to turn his control of the region into more of a kingship. However, Madeline Andre Fitzgerald, in her paper, The Rulers of Larsa, argues that may not be the case. Quote, I have found no positive evidence that Gungunum or any of his predecessors functioned as governors of the province of Lagash under the Isin kings, as suggested by Hallow and Kurt. However, without known year names of his own, Zabiah was probably not a completely independent king. The shift toward an independent Larsa perhaps begins with Samium, grew with his son Zabiah, and culminated in the reign of Gungunum. Unquote. Whether he was a governor-turned-king or a petty king who elevated himself as his power grew, either way, Gungunum ended up eventually being acknowledged as a true king, and his predecessors probably weren't. Gungunum first came to his position, whatever it was originally called, in 1932 BC. Whether he was being opportunistic or just trying to defend the lands he governed from outside invaders, According to George C. Cameron in his History of Early Iran, he, quote, immediately turned to the northeast for conquest, unquote. His first target was the city of Dur, which seems to have attempted to be expansionist in its own right, but their king, Anumu Tabil, was soon defeated and submitted to Gungunum. But rather than some horrible Bronze Age fate befalling Anumu Tabil, he instead became a Shakanaku, or military governor, under Larsa's dominion and he went out and fought alongside Gungunum in further conquests. 
While there isn't much direct evidence, a speculative story starts to form here. So Isin was weak, and the governor of their territory of Lagash, who was from the city of Larsa, had to act on his own to defend his region. Dur, maybe some other outside agitators, were pushing their way west and threatening lands that he was supposed to govern. No help was on its way from Isin, so he struck at Dur, conquering it, and the king of Dur submitted to him. With that, he came to the conclusion that he was a king in his own right, and pulled Dur into the lands that he was being tasked to govern, but under a new crown. It's certainly a plausible story, although we don't know if that's how it happened. As Fitzgerald pointed out, there isn't evidence that Gunganam's father was a governor. That piece of the speculation probably comes from the fact that there also isn't evidence that Gunganam's father was a king either. Regardless, at this point, Gunganam was a king, and he controlled Larsa, some cities up the Tigris, and now Dur in the foothills of the Zagros Mountains. Then, according to Cameron, he, quote, added the troops of Dur to those he brought from Larsa and penetrated the eastern mountains in his third year to destroy the city Bashimu. This was a direct thrust at Idatu II and the kingdom of Samash, unquote. A couple of new names here, so let's get into them. Samash, or Shimash, is better known as the Shamashki dynasty of the kingdom of Elam. So when Cameron says he was attacking Samash, he meant he was attacking Elam. Bashimu was closer to Mesopotamia, but Gunganam then kept going into Elam, and perhaps beyond. Now, Elam was at times expansionist into the Tigris River Valley, so if Gunganam wasn't a governor under the kingship of Isin, some have speculated that in fact the kingdom of Elam had some sort of control over Larsa and the region at the time. If that was the case, then his attack on Elam would have been more like a revolt, shaking off their hegemony. But we just don't know. What we do know is that he was so successful in his attack on Elam that he laid claim to the conquest of Anshan. Anshan was the eastern capital of Elam, although, and here we go again with the speculation, there is some possibility that this was more of a defeat of an army from Anshan, that is to say the Elamite army, rather than a sack of the city itself. It's also recorded that Gungunum destroyed Barashi, also called Marhashi, a region east of Elam, corresponding to today's region of Kirman. This is distant enough from southern Mesopotamia that it would be kind of difficult to envision a real conquest of the area and maybe support for the idea that Gungunum was defeating armies rather than destroying cities. That being said, Sargon and Hammurabi both claim to have conquered Barashi, so it is possible. Either way, despite the caveats, it is generally accepted that Gungunum did raid into Anshan at least the region around it, if not the city itself, although maybe the city. Hard to put in that much detail when you're writing in clay, I guess. It isn't recorded what happened to Idatu II of Elam after his encounter with the new kingdom of Larsa. In fact, nothing is recorded about him after this. He disappears from the written record. Cameron speculates Gungunum killed him in battle, and it's pretty clear that the once-powerful Shamashki kingdom of Elam essentially ended at this point. And while the nature of the conquest is quite unclear, a decade later, Gungunum's name is referenced in a tablet from Susa, 
suggesting he still held at least some sway over Elam. Gungunum also wrested the city of Nippur, that Sumerian spiritual center north of Isin, from the hands of his rival. Larsa had clearly begun to surpass Isin. But Gungunum didn't just spend his reign focused on conquest. Instead, it seems after the war with Elam, he worked to improve his kingdom's infrastructure, that is to say roads, fortresses, and canals, and generally worked to expand his influence. Perhaps the biggest, or at least most telling accomplishment in his reign, came about a decade into it. It's not clear that it took a military endeavor, so it's possible this was done through diplomatic means. But at some point during his reign, Gungunum was also able to claim rule over the city of Ur. Now, we do know that Larsa was fighting Isin around this time, so part of this war may well have been over Ur itself. But that's not necessarily the case. The speculation on Ur's peaceful change of hands is based on the fact that, although we know Isin was desperate for help fighting Larsa, we haven't seen anything about Larsa actually conquering Ur. Now, maybe this was conscious PR by Gungunum. No need to broadcast the bloody conquest of the ancient capital. But it's entirely possible there was no bloody conquest. Ur may have simply seen Larsa as a much safer kingdom to be aligned to and petitioned for their protection. We don't know. Anyway, we are fairly certain that Ur became part of Gungunum's kingdom of Larsa. Being king of Ur, thanks to the relatively recent Ur III dynasty, was one of those things that let people say they were the king of Sumer, without too much snickering from others. So, this all happened in what was probably the tenth year of his reign, because that's the first time Gungunum calls himself king of Sumer and Akkad. The high priestess of the moon god at Ur was an important position, and it was held by a close relation to the king of Sumer and Akkad. The high priestess during Gungunum's reign was the daughter of the king of Isin, and Gungunum allowed her to remain in this position. Why this happened, we don't know. But since he certainly appears to be in charge, this could well be a sign of a peaceful takeover. Or maybe that, even if Isin was fighting Gungunum over Ur, Ur itself welcomed him. It wasn't just the political clout of controlling Ur that Gungunum wanted, though. According to Jane McIntosh in her book, Ancient Mesopotamia, New Perspectives, quote, Larsa came to control Nippur, Susa, and perhaps Uruk, and in 1925 seized Ur from Isin, thereby gaining control of the still lucrative gulf trade, especially in copper, now conducted through the trading entrepot of Dilmun, unquote. Despite its current location far from the shore, at the time, Ur sat at the edge of the Persian Gulf. Dilmun was a neighboring region located on the southwestern shore of the Gulf. Around modern-day Qatar, Bahrain, and even up the shores of eastern Saudi Arabia as far north as Kuwait, putting it at the very edges of Sumer. Dilmun was an ancient center of commerce, was probably at the height of its power around this time, and linked the trade from Mesopotamia to the Indus Valley civilization. In the 16th year of his reign, a tablet commemorating his regnal year was carved in Susa, demonstrating that he had some sort of hegemony there. Susa was the main western city of Elam, one of their capitals, 
and this was likely lasting influence from when he conquered Elam over a decade earlier. Even if his influence waned, it makes sense that this city, much closer to Sumer than most other Elamite cities, remained under his control. In the 19th year of his reign, 1914 BC, give or take, we have evidence of more military activity. Larsa came into conflict with, and conquered, the city of Malgium. The site of this city was lost, although in 2020, it appears to have been identified on a place upriver on the Tigris from southern Sumer, but still south of Eshnuna. Most of the evidence we have for the remaining years of Gungunum's life suggests less conquest, more fortifying of his realm. Lots more talk of building walls, gates, canals, and the like. He died in 1906 BC after ruling for nearly three decades. According to Fitzgerald, quote, Larsa firmly established itself as a threat to the hegemony of Isin in the reign of Gungunum. In the reigns of the succeeding kings, the kingdom of Larsa appears to have grown in importance, asserting itself as a major player on an increasingly complex interstate stage, unquote. Gungunum was succeeded by someone in his inner circle who ruled for about a decade and continued Larsa's dominance of the region. It's not clear if it was his son or if it was a trusted advisor, but there seems to have been no struggle for control, a peaceful transfer of power. There is talk of some successful smiting of Issin by the new king. However, he may not have controlled Nippur anymore, as he didn't call himself king of Sumer and Akkad, but he did control Ur and may have based himself there. Larsa continued to be the most powerful city in the region, but it was never strong enough to unite at all. That would be left to another city. Not long after Gungunum's reign, the Euphrates shifted course, which was taken advantage of by another Amorite clan. This one decided to make the small village of Babylon its home, and built walls to fortify what would eventually become a great city. The Amorite chief there in the late 1800s and early 1700s Sin Mubalit, began calling himself king of Babylon and grew the city's territories at the expense of its neighbors. His son, Hammurabi, ruled as king for over four decades. He brought Isin and then Larsa under his control. Eventually, Hammurabi and the First Babylonian Empire ruled over most of Mesopotamia, from Ur, Uruk, Lagash, and Larsa, up through Isin, Kish, and Babylon, up as far as Mari on the Euphrates, and Assur and Nineveh on the Tigris. When Hammurabi came to power, Rimsin was the king in Larsa. Rimsin was powerful and reigned for nearly six decades. He fought with the cities to his north and eventually took Isin, making Larsa the clear winner in the centuries-long conflict. But he still only controlled southern Mesopotamia. To the north, there was much more fragmentation. In addition to Babylon, Eshnuna was a strong independent state, and further north, Shamshi Adad had united lands under the sway of Assur. The Assyrian Empire stretched as far as eastern Anatolia and the Levant, but after Shamshi Adad died, his empire began to fracture and no longer posed a threat to Sumer. A resurgent Elam, however, did. Elam raided into the region, sacking the powerful Eshnuna. Elam attempted to play Babylon and Larsa against each other. Instead, Rimsin and Hammurabi allied to ward off the Elamite threat. But Larsa didn't end up contributing much as Babylon marched east, and this caused friction. 
Although at this point Babylon was one of several powerful kingdoms in the region, including Larsa and Yamhad, and nearby Katna in the north, this would change. Eventually, Hammurabi went after Rimsin for his lack of cooperation, and by that point Babylon was stronger. Hammurabi took over southern Mesopotamia, growing his power base significantly. Before his reign ended, he was able to do the same to the north, turning Assyria into a tributary. The rise of Babylon under Hammurabi spelled the end of Larsa as a power, and the end of the Isin-Larsa period of Mesopotamian history. That dynasty ruled for about 200 years after Hammurabi began expanding, until 1595, when the Hittite king Mursili sacked Babylon, ending the First Babylonian Empire. Gunganum did not create a major empire that ruled over the region like those before and after his reign. But he did pull Larsa up from relative obscurity to become a significant regional power. He created what might be considered the last Sumerian kingdom, although it can be pretty easily argued that most of the Sumer was gone from this kingdom. It was Amorite rule that used Sumerian underpinnings to maintain power. Regardless, when Larsa was gone, so was Sumer. The region became Babylonia instead. Gungunum was a strong king during a period of transition and chaos, who used conquest but also diplomacy to create a strong kingdom at a time when nobody else seemed to be able to do so. Next episode, we'll move forward about 1,500 years and further east to look at another powerful king who was able to take a small kingdom and become the most powerful leader among a group of at times allied and at times battling leaders and states. Thanks for listening.